As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I seriously have a book on me, like at all times. I have books in my trunk. Books <laughs> 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 at my desk at work. It's ridiculous. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 143. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, hits stores in September. While that's over a month away, the time to pre-order is now. I'm going to tell you why. And to give you a little extra incentive, we've just announced some fun and adorable pre-order bonuses. Here's the quick behind the scenes into why authors and publishers like pre-orders so much. Your pre-orders send a message to retailers. They use your pre-orders as a way of gauging interest in a particular title. So the more pre-orders there are, the more bookstores will choose to stock the book and the more copies they'll put on their shelves. The more copies they order, the larger the print run. The larger the print run, the less risk of encountering one of those dreaded out-of-stock situations where readers have literally purchased all the available books and you have to wait for more to roll off the actual presses. So all in all, your pre-orders help get more copies of the book into more places, and that means more people will see and hopefully buy I'd Rather Be Reading, and I would love readers to read my book about reading. That's why we really like pre-orders, and that's why my publisher and I have worked up some great bonuses for you. I'm not going to list all of them here, but I want you to know two things. One of the bonuses is a class I'm teaching live on August 2nd called Seven Ways to Get More Out of Your Reading Life. So you're going to want to place your order and fill out the pre-order form soon so you can catch that live. If you can attend or if you order after that date, we'll share the recorded class, no worries, but live attendees get to ask me questions, and that's a lot of fun. The second thing I want you to know is that my team and I are personally mailing out stickers, bookmarks, signed book plates, and more for readers who order two or more copies. This is the kind of book that you'll want to give to all your readerly friends, so go on and grab those holiday presents and back-to-school teacher gifts now. You'll do your part in spreading the book love and have my eternal gratitude besides. To learn more about all of the bonuses and to get yours, go to idratherbereading.com. I think you'll be delighted with both the book and the bonuses. I'd rather be reading.com. Readers, if both Netflix and the bookshelf hold equal value in your heart, you'll totally relate to today's guest. 
Patience Randall, who you may know by her Instagram handle, Ink and Fable, loves a book with cinematic appeal, especially if it comes with a comfy chair and a great cup of coffee. Today, we're chatting about books that would make great screenplays, future novel writing dreams, what would happen if the apocalypse came to our hometowns, and so much more. It's a good one. Let's get to it. Patience, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I'm so excited to talk books today. And you know, I think you may be our very first guest from Kansas City. <laughs> I've never been, but I keep hearing that I need to go because the book scene is incredible and it's just a really great city. Something about fountains? Oh, yes. We are the city of fountains for sure. And we have a lot of great coffee shops here and a lot of great indie bookstores. So if you're a book lover, you definitely need to visit Kansas City for sure. Yes, that is a really strong sales pitch to me and to our audience. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if I were going to Kansas City, what are some of the bookstores and coffee shops I want to make sure I found? And I love that in a city that size, you need the plural because you don't always in cities that aren't like major metropolises. So if you're visiting Kansas City for the first time and you want to do some book shopping, I would definitely recommend Rainy Day Books. Uh -huh. I thought you might start there. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Definitely Monarch Coffee for the really cute coffee shop scene. And there's actually a new boozy book bar thing opening next month. It's called Our Daily Nada. And that'll be opening up soon. And I cannot wait for that to open. I'm so stoked. Have you ever been to a book bar like that before? I've never been. I've only no. been to one in Denver and it's called Book Bar and they have coffee and wine and snacks and lots and lots of books. And I'd never been a place like that before. And it was such a delight. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I've been seriously counting down the days until this thing opens. Like, <laughs> that sounds like the perfect combination. So I'm really excited for that. Uh, yes, that sounds amazing. And now I understand readers' enthusiasm for who keeps saying, Anne, you got to go. You got to go. How did you end up there? I was born and raised in Kansas City. I went to college in Indiana. And then after that, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and then I just wanted to come back home. So I am back in KC. I've been here since uh, 2015. I just love it here. What do you love about it? I don't know. It just feels like home. It's almost like a big city feel in a small kind of community type way. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I think that's a great answer. Patience, when you're not reading, what do you do by day? Or, you know, I guess a day job doesn't always happen during the nine to five, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I actually, I work in publishing and digital marketing. So that is my job by day. And then at night, I'm either reading or binge watching Netflix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I also I also love the whole script writing scene. So I'm always kind of um, trying to find the latest and greatest thing to binge watch. You've mentioned that a time or two on your Instagram account. Tell me about script writing. Oh, man, I think that's probably my first love. My major was in film production and with a focus in script writing. So I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, I love how everything comes together. And I know like writing a novel is more of a um, solo experience, but working on a film is like this big team of people working together to make something beautiful. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. And yeah, I've always loved it. It's interesting to me how so many books about the writing process or books that aspiring novelists have basically stolen from the screenwriting authors. Like, um, yes. Yes, like Steal the Cat and the Truby yep. book everybody loves. I've seen a few of these on your book stacks. Yes, yes. What do you find appealing about that format of storytelling? What makes you want to be a part of that? I think it's a lot of 
you're writing knowing that it's going to be shown on screen. There's that rule, it's show, don't tell. I think when I'm writing, if I'm like working on a novel, I have to remind myself like, oh, this, is, <laughs> this isn't going to be seen anywhere. So you can, you can describe a little bit more. And I also just love writing dialogue um, between two people. That's one of the things that appeals to me about script writing. So you love Netflix, and yet I know that you also have a vibrant reading life. Do you feel like you have to balance those two proactively, or does it just happen naturally? I definitely think I have to balance. Like, it's easy when you come home from work and you're tired. It's easy to sit in front of the TV and and take things in rather than – I feel like I have to kind of prepare myself to read, to kind of get in the groove of reading. Whereas binge watching Netflix doesn't take that. (laughs) So you just get a snack and hop on the couch and binge watch. So I definitely feel like there's a balance there. I'm working on it. It's not easy. (laughs) I'm tired at the end of the day. So I totally hear you. And I like to read at night because that's when it fits with the rhythms of my life. I know that's true for a lot of people. For sure. And I used to have this routine where I would get up an hour early before work, before when I was doing freelance, it was just a little bit easier to do my reading in the morning. But now I'm just like, okay, where do I fit in my reading time? What's your preferred or maybe only time you can take to read right now? I'm just kind of fitting it in wherever it fits. So sometimes I will read on my lunch break, which is about um, like 25, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the weekends, so definitely on Saturdays, definitely on Sundays, if I'm not too tired when I get home from work, I try to fit in a little bit of reading time before I go to bed. Now, are you the kind of reader who has a book in your purse and you'll pull it out if there's like a traffic jam? Always, always, always. (laughs) So you don't feel like you need, like, if I don't have 45 minutes, it's not worth picking up the book. Oh yeah. No, I seriously have a book on me. Like at all times I have books in my trunk. It's ridiculous. People are like, you don't ever go anywhere. I'm like, yeah, because you never know like when you'll have some reading time. So yes, I always have a book with me. Tell me about the books in the trunk, Patience. Are they on their way to Goodwill? Did you just like hit up a major used book sale? Are they still from your move? Ooh, so you did move across town recently. I did. That was actually the majority of my boxes were just stacks and stacks and boxes of books. It was pretty ridiculous, but I love my books and they all had to be here with me. And you're right. There are actually some books in the trunk that I need to take to half price books to exchange for new books. And I haven't done it yet. I have a couple boxes by my back door. Yeah. Are they going to Goodwill? Where are they going? I can't decide, but they've been there since March. Oh, no. (laughs) I understand. You totally did. A little too well. So you had a lot of books to move. I did. I had a lot of books to move. I actually still need to get one more bookshelf. I guess it's going to go in my bedroom because there are still a few boxes that I need to unpack. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not everybody enjoys owning books. Some people are perfectly happy to pick up at the library and drop back off or read on their e-reader. But I get the strong impression that you like to see your literary material. I know. Everyone's like, why don't you just go to the library and get a book and take it back? And I'm like, no. (laughs) I just, for some reason, I have to own the books that I read and keep them. If I don't like the book that I finish reading, you know, I'll take it to Half Price Books or to Goodwill or something like that. But I don't know what it is about having a bookshelf. It's just so pretty to look at. And then it's almost like a badge of honor. (laughs) And your editions are so pretty. Okay. You know, I just realized that we haven't told listeners yet that I'm saying this with confidence, not because I've hung out in front of your bookshelves, although that would be (laughs) lovely, but because you have a really lovely Instagram account called Ink and Fable, where you take photographs of books and coffee, which are two of my favorite things. Same here. 
what inspired you to start an Instagram account devoted to books? And I mean, I really feel like it's almost devoted secondarily to coffee. I love coffee. And before, this is just like a tangent story, but I really wanted to get into food photography. Uh I just, I love the way coffee looks. I love the way food looks and taking pictures, but that didn't work out. So kind of my way of paying an homage to food photography. But starting a book account, let's see, I think I started in 2016 and it was just after the election and I was just a little disappointed in the turnout and I just kind of wanted an escape from everything. And so I was like, you know what? I used to read all the time, like daily. Maybe this will be a good way to kind of push myself to read daily again. So that's kind of how it started as an escape, I guess. So has it turned out that way? Has it inspired you to start reading more? Definitely. Picking up books that I would have never picked up before, just book community. It's so awesome. I'd love to hear about some of the books that you found on Instagram. I feel like I'm flashing back to when I first had to like tell my mother that I was meeting somebody in person that I'd met on Twitter. And she was like, (laughs) how is this possible? And is it a good idea? Did that surprise you to realize how important that became to you in your reading life? It really surprised me because before I actually don't even really know how I got book recommendations, I guess from friends saying like, oh, you need really need to read this book or um, maybe reading a review in the New York Times and that kind of thing. But now I don't even know how I would find what to read next, except for your podcast, <laughs> which is a perfect example. I hear what you're saying, though. Like, I don't think I even realized until we're talking about this right now, how many book recommendations I get from Bookstagram. And a lot of times I'm getting them from people I know, but there's something different about them sharing a little story in a picture as they're thinking of it, not just because it happened to come up in your conversation over coffee. Yeah. And actually I got one of my, my favorite books of all time, The Secret History by Donna Tartt that was recommended. Um, I had just seen it all over Bookstagram and I was like, okay, I need to like take some time and read this book. And I just fell in love with it, like five stars. How did you know it was for you? Was it because of the people sharing it or the way they were talking about it? Did the cover just speak to you? Were you like, I need to own that book on my bookshelves? I think it was the way that people were talking about it. And it just kind of seemed like, this is a weird way to describe books, but sometimes if I read the summary and I feel like it could be a movie and maybe it's because I love screenplay so much, I'm like, oh, I could really, I think I might enjoy this. I had had her, let's see, The Goldfinch on my shelf for forever and never read it, still haven't. I finished The Secret History so quickly and ended up loving it. And it is an enormous book. So that's saying something. It didn't feel lengthy. It was like perfect. (laughs) Are you able to articulate what it is about a book description that makes you think, oh, that would be a good movie? Or is it something that you just know? I think um, maybe even not so much the summary, but just reading the first few pages and knowing like these characters would be perfect on screen. Well, Patience, I'm really excited to hear you say that about your favorites because I would dearly like to watch the movies of some of your favorite books. Yeah. Can you imagine Station Eleven as a movie? I love that book so much. And even though I don't have a great track record of actually following through and watching the books I love that have become movies because we don't go to the movies a lot, but also because I chicken out, I think, do I really want to see what they did to that on the big screen? Like, what if it's not as good as I want it to be? Right. So as someone who really loves screenwriting, I'm guessing that you don't chicken out the same way I do. I do though, because it's hard. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm looking for guidance, like tips or reassurance. (laughs) 
a book is a little bit more personal because when you're reading it, it's just a solo experience. And when you're watching a movie, you're watching with a whole bunch of different people. It's just exposed to the entire world in a way that a book isn't. So I totally understand what you're saying. The film feels a little more final to me. Yeah. Whereas my reading experience, I feel like you can revise in your head anytime. And change the ending if you don't like the way <laughs> it ended. Yeah. It's like the book you interpret for yourself, but to some degree... Not entirely, but to some degree, the film has done the work of interpretation for you. Definitely. Is there a common thread you notice in the stories you love, no matter what the medium is? Mm, common thread. Usually the stories I love are like post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction, or really um, they take place in desolate areas or the backwoods of some... It's odd. Like when I think about all of my favorite films and all of my favorite books, they all kind of have that common thread, like No Country for Old Men, Interstellar, Good Morning Midnight. They all kind of have that same vibe. And yet you mentioned, even though you find yourself drawn to that genre, that it can be hard to find good books for you that are dystopian. Although I did just pick up, I'm super late to the game. So, oh, oh my goodness, I'm ashamed. Don't be ashamed. <laughs> just started reading The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And it's amazing. I love it so, so much. And I can't believe I'm just now starting to read it. We moved last year. And so I can remember which kitchen I was listening to the audiobook in. So I just did that. Like in the last 18 months, I listened to Claire Danes read it on Audible. So I was also really, really late to the game right there with yeah. you and had a similar reaction. Like, what? A, why haven't I read this before? Yeah, I was this like, fantastic. Writing, yeah, I was like her writing is amazing. And of course, like I wanted to read the book before I started the Hulu series. There's a new book coming out this summer that I just finished reading that reminded me so much of The Handmaid's Tale. I don't okay. see it becoming one of your favorites. I might be wrong. Okay. But I'm wondering if you've heard of it and it's on your radar. It's called Vox. It's by Christina Dolcher. Do you know anything about this? I've heard about it, but I don't know anything. I'm seeing it everywhere on Bookstagram. Yeah, I've seen it too. But I just haven't picked it up yet. I just did last night in my son's ball game because I left the house without a book. <gasps> I know, <laughs> but I had the Kindle app on my phone and it saved the day. So it's supposed to have a kind of realistic vibe. It's set in the not too distant future and it's like The Handmaid's Tale. Oh. It becomes clear in the early pages, all the women, but not the men, have these counters. The protagonist's line throughout the book is, don't you dare call it a bracelet. But they have these counters on their wrists that tracks the number of words females speak per day, like right down to the smallest babies. Oh, wow. And they can't surpass 100. And if they do, they are physically shocked. And they make clear over the course of the story that this isn't just like your dog is getting close to the line of the invisible offense, but a potentially lethal shock as you exceed your word count more and more. Whoa. So women have been literally silenced. And then it also reminds me of The Handmaid's Tale. And then in flashbacks, you find out nobody thought it would be that this bad. There are whispers of the new president and his men and what would happen. And lots of people are fleeing to Canada and Europe, but then the borders are closed and women lose their passports. And so you can see how it sounds very Margaret Atwood. It's a really interesting premise. Okay. Yes. I have to read that like right now. That sounds amazing. But the reason we're talking about it now and not later in the show <laughs> is like, I don't think it's the right tone for the kind of books you love. So it could be real. It's really cinematic, I think, okay. but it's really fast moving. It's not a desolate setting. It's set outside DC. The main character's husband works for the administration, but it's a little bit um, snarkier. Like in mm. some ways it reminded me of the female persuasion, especially with one of the female friendships at the core of the book, but it's really fast paced and it's plot 
driven and the characters aren't extremely well-developed. Okay. I have noticed in the books that you tend to love mm-hmm. that they're a little more sedate and they take time to flesh out their stories and their characters. And the prose is really stylish. Yes, definitely. But sometimes you just got to succumb to a great premise and, you know, read a book you can read really fast because it's fun exactly. and creepy. Definitely creepy. I 100% agree. And I feel like I need more of those because sometimes you need a break from the the whole slow moving kind of thing going on. So I hear you because I love those books and they tend to be uh, very philosophical yes. and deep. <laughs> and sometimes you just need to not, I mean, sometimes you need the literary equivalent of MasterChef Junior. Yes, exactly. You said that it could be challenging to find good books in the dystopian genre. So what's a good book for you? What's a really good dystopian book look like? What elements does it have? I think for me, one of the number one things it's got to have, and this is just for any book, it's just a really well-developed main character. They've got to be like three-dimensional. I read a lot of books where it's very surface level and the characters just don't seem real, especially if it's dystopian fiction. I want to feel like this could maybe happen and that you could meet this person on the street and know that they're real. And so sometimes I have a hard time finding those types of gritty, realistic characters. And then, of course, like an awesome atmosphere. It could be in space. <laughs> it could be in a desert. Um, it could be, you know, in Kansas City. If any authors are listening, we want a dystopian novel in Kansas City. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I take one in Louisville, Kentucky. That could be fun. Yeah. Or I don't know. Are you sure? Do you want to read a dystopian story about the, the place you live in? <gasps> okay, maybe not. I don't know. Because that could be amazing, but also maybe just a little too close to home. It could be. Maybe St. Louis would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I would love to dive in more to your favorites. Are you ready to talk about your books? I'm ready. Read. Here's how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you said not so much, and what you're reading now, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Patience, what's the first book you love? First book I love, um, The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Uh-huh, which we couldn't resist talking about already, a good sign. Yeah, and this this book is not dystopian fiction, but the characters were just so realistic and three-dimensional, and the way she writes is just absolutely stunning. So you can't help but falling in love with it. And I think it's like a modern twist on a classic whodunit story. Um, so mm-hmm. a little bit of mystery and intrigue, and I love it. Okay, so very complex. Very, yes. I think just the way that she's able to carry the story with so many different characters, I think that's extremely hard to do. And for her to do that so well, is just another star added to her, her grade. I'm interested if you'll agree with me here or not. I was thinking that I do really admire the way that Donna Tartt makes you care deeply about a story and what happens to the characters in it, even though they're deeply flawed and not so likable. I don't know if I'm allowed to jump to the book that I don't like, but they kind of relate in a way. Go for it. The book that's not my favorite um, is The Beloveds by Maureen Lindley. And it's kind of the whole envious evil sister story. But the main character, the sister was just so terrible. Like I just couldn't get past how evil she was. So, and it's just funny the way that the secret history kind of does that, but I loved it. And then the beloveds is trying to kind of do the same thing, but I just couldn't, I couldn't finish it. Have you thought about why that is? You know what? I haven't because I haven't compared these titles and and until you, you say that. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, it's a similar thing, but one does it really well. And, 
and one doesn't. So why is that? I've never read The Beloveds, although that is an excellent title. But the way you're talking about her, I wonder if it's not just that you wouldn't be down for like a evil stepsister. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, they're blood sisters, but yeah, that's the whole kind of deal. So like a mean sister story might be okay, but was it like one dimensionally mean? Yeah. Only mean, like pure evil? Yeah, it was very one dimensional. And she, uh, her motivation for being it was just odd. It's just, and, I, and I really wish I would have. It's been a while since I've um, put this book down. So I feel like I just kind of pushed it out of my brain altogether. It's just funny. My mom and I watched those those corny like Lifetime movies, you know, where you have like the evil sibling and it's fun to watch. You know what's going to happen. But it just felt really flat to me and predictable. While as the secret history was a lot more complex and kept you guessing. Okay. You just said two really interesting things I didn't expect to come up in a conversation (laughs) about the secret history. One is that you love corny Lifetime movies, or at least the experience of watching them with your mother. Yeah. My mom does. Now she makes me watch them with her, but I love her so much. So I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) What's fun about that experience? I think it's fun. Like we know what's going to happen, but my mom just gets so excited. She's like, okay, she's going in the room. Okay. Oh my goodness. No, don't. She's got a knife. And it's just funny. (laughs) It's just fun watching her reaction and spending time with her in that way. So, (laughs) so this isn't anything you'd like choose to do on your own. Definitely not. (laughs) But with the right partner. For sure. And also that apparently you were a book putter downer. I am. And that's before I found The Handmaid's Tale, I had been having so much trouble picking up all these books and I'd get like 50 pages in and just be like, ah, uh, I can't finish it. And maybe it's because I get distracted by other great books out there. I just, I'm not reading fast enough. It's so hard. That is definitely a bookstagram problem. I'm acutely aware of all the books I'm not reading. Right. It's easy for the grass to look a little greener or whatever the appropriate bookish version of that metaphor is. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I feel like I'm, I want to keep up. That's hard sometimes because I feel like I'm missing out. I'm like, oh, they're reading this and they said it's amazing and I'm not there yet. Wait for me. At what point in reading The Handmaid's Tale did you relax and think like, oh, finally I found one? Oh, like two pages in, seriously. Oh, wow. It was just seriously, it's the way that she writes. Like it, just gorgeous prose. I just love her detail. So I was like, oh yes, this is, this is a winner. So I'm about halfway in and I'm hoping to finish it in the next few days. I am obsessed with it. Gorgeous, atmospheric, detailed prose. Yes, yes, yes. But then you add dystopian to that and then the list gets a whole lot shorter. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your second book that you love. Mm, Station 11. I've been trying to wait patiently. I don't think I've been pulling it off though. (laughs) Tell me about Station Eleven. So I read most of this book outside on a patio, my favorite coffee shop. If you're ever in Kansas City, go read a book at Dalmaeus on their porch surrounded by beautiful plants. (laughs) It was a perfect place to read Station Eleven. Because somebody else made your coffee and delivered it to you in a cup that was clean. Exactly. I feel like this book made me feel weightless and... I don't know how to describe it. I'm having trouble, Anne. (laughs) It's constantly surprising to me how difficult it is to describe a book we really like. Because I feel like if we don't like a book or if we have issues with a book, we can often be articulate about why. To be like, oh, I just got hung up on the way this one issue was handled or I just didn't believe that character. But 
if we really loved a book, sometimes our brain just wants to go, oh, I loved it so much. So like really lovely prose, Mm -hmm. steadily paced, desolated Michigan, and a little bit of Georgia, I think. Well-developed characters. Mm -hmm. Does this have that cinematic quality for you? 100%. Okay. (laughs) As a reader, I'm a little jealous now because I think I had to read this book three times before it was really clear to me that she was describing scenes that my imagination had a hard time like actually bringing to life in my mind. Mm -hmm. Like um, the last time I read it, which was fairly recently, I really noticed her description of all the abandoned cars just Uh, lined up on the road when the traveling symphony was walking from one town to another to, you know, take their Shakespeare show on the road. And I thought, did I not notice that before? Was my brain like, ah, that's too creepy. We're just going to pretend we didn't read that. I'm thinking that someone who likes to envision their books on the big screen probably noticed that the first time. Yeah. And that's another thing I love too, about that whole idea of a traveling caravan of musicians and theater people traveling around this like desolate wasteland. It's just really interesting and something that could very well happen in the future. Yeah, it was really different than the other dystopian novels Mm. I've read. I don't think I've read as many as you have, but Emily St. John Mandel, she's talked in interviews about how so many dystopian novels are about like what's happening right now is everything is going to pieces. And she was more interested in what happens after. So she deliberately said it 20 years out when it was in the past and in the background. And so there are references to what happened then. But, and we do see in Station Eleven, um, we do follow one character who is on the ground, but at a distance. He's not in the thick of things. Right. And it's a gentle apocalypse. That's a great way of describing the books that I like. Gentle apocalypse. It's so perfect. We can work with that. Patience, what rounds out your favorites list? Good Morning Midnight by Lily Brooks Dalton. It's Oh, it's so, it's just so beautiful. Oh my goodness. That sigh was just so perfect. (laughs) If I could write a book, I would want my book to be this. It kind of reminds me of Station Eleven in a way. The covers are actually pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So when I picked it up, I thought it was actually by Emily. And I don't even know how I found this book. I think it was maybe one of those listicles, like if you like Station Eleven, pick this up. It's kind of a similar format as Station Eleven. So it takes place um, in two separate locations. So you're in outer space and then you're also in is it Antarctica. Uh, again, I'm terrible at describing my favorite book. No, I've read it too. Did and you- I'm trying to think, where was that other place? Where was that other place? I know it was like really cold. Because it's the atmosphere that sticks with you. Yeah. And the characters, not the details of the plot. So many times after reading a book for the first time, I can't remember their names a month later. Yeah. But I'll go, oh, I loved it so much. (laughs) Whoever they were. That's all this episode is just going to be me sighing about the beautiful books I've read. It's just like, (laughs) oh, yes, I loved it so much, but I can't tell you about it. Just read it. I loved the connection between the characters and how she made everything come full circle I'm just jealous of the way she writes. It's amazing. From a reader whose taste I know I have a lot in common with, just read it. It's so good. It's actually a really effective recommendation that I'm likely to take action on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm known for literally grabbing the book and just putting it in my friend's hand. And I'm like, hey, read this book and then come back and tell me what you think later. And what happens next? (laughs) Usually they like it. (laughs) (laughs) But they read it. That means they read it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, give me my book back. Uh, No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
Although I've seen some pictures of some hard to find classics that you've tracked down. Maybe those don't get loaned out. Those do not get loaned out because they're pretty hard to find. And I'm a crazy lady when it comes to my books. I'm like, oh my gosh, that whole thing, don't break the spine. And so. All right. Can I tell you my life regrets? Yes. Okay. This isn't, this isn't the top of the list, but it's close, is not buying the Mr. Bodinen's classics at Anthropology when they were half oh. off because they were being discontinued. Oh my goodness. Oh. What was I thinking? What were you thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy. I still have one more to track down. I don't have Little Women. So that's the last one I need. And then your collection will be complete. Then it will be complete and I will be, I mean, I'm happy now just to have the additions that I have, but yes, I would love to have a full set one day. I mean, there's so many gorgeous classics, yes. but those always taunt me because I remember thinking about it and walking away at Anthropology. They were like eight bucks each. Oh, oh that hurts my heart. I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's so insane. Like you look on eBay or Amazon at some of these editions and they're like, over $300. And I'm like, what? Out of control. See, I've only been regretting not buying them for myself. And while I have no idea to run an eBay showroom out of my you know, living room, I am seeing how other people standing in front of the anthropology half price off shelf uh-huh. might have had different <laughs> entrepreneurial thoughts. Yeah. And that's another thing I love about the Bookstagram community is just how everyone helps each other out. And if there's an addition that someone's missing, a good friend of mine actually sent me the Mr. Boddington Jane Eyre edition. Oh. It was so sweet. That is so expensive. And I was like, ah, oh, this community is awesome sauce. <laughs> That's so sweet. And you know that she knew how much a gift like that would be appreciated. She did. She did. She was like, I think you need this more than I do. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you are so kind. <laughs> Patience, what are you reading right now? I'm reading The Handmaid's Tale right now. Are you a one book a time reader? Yeah. I've tried the whole two, three books at a time and one book always ends up getting more love than the other. So I feel like I should just do one book at a time. Oh, you don't want to put your books in that position. I don't. I want to give them my undivided attention and love. So so I am a one book at a time lady. Okay. No kind of sibling rivalry or anything like that in your house. Exactly. Got it. (laughs) And is there anything you want more of in your reading life? You know, I would kind of be down for some historical fiction, which is really odd. I feel like for me, I don't know where that came from, (laughs) but I feel like I'd be open to it. I'm reading, oh, what is it called? The Nightingale. I'm not reading it yet, but I just like flipped through a few pages and I was like, oh my goodness, this is probably going to read that next. And All the Light We Cannot See. It started out a little bit slow, but it's kind of picking up the pace. That was the book I was reading before I started Handmaid's Tale. So now that one is on the shelf and then I'll probably pick that one up again later. But you see, see how my brain works. It's all over the place. Well, I have some ideas for you. I'm really eager to hear what you think of them. Ooh, I'm excited. Readers, patients, I feel like we've talked a lot about what you like in books. The challenge is finding all those descriptors actually between the same two covers. So I'm a little surprised at the historical angle. I didn't expect that. I know, I know, right? But I have an idea. Okay. Following that line, have you read or do you know anything about The History of Bees by Maya Lund? I don't Oh, wait, that sounds really familiar, though. There's also a novel called The Bees that I've seen a lot, and this is not the same. This one is a little bit newer. The reason I'm thinking about this for you is, well, I don't know how you feel about books in translation, but it is in translation. It's by a Norwegian author. If you have a reading challenge you're working through or you're trying to read books that aren't based in the U.S. as someone who lives in the U.S., this could be a good one for that. If you don't care, that's just a little fun fact. I like this for you because it is 
post-apocalyptic, which isn't really the same as dystopian, but like, yeah, no, I'm totally down, but it's not the kind of apocalypse I've ever seen in any other kind of literature. And it has an interesting structure. And I know you like the interesting structure. The author weaves together three different storylines that are past, present, and future. I feel like you could get your dystopian fix and you could read your historical fiction. Mm. The prose is very stylish. So the storylines are the middle of the 19th century in England. And then we have the present day when things are kind of falling apart. And then we have late 21st century. I think the year is like 2096 or 2098 when bees are now extinct. So the apocalypse in this form came in the form of all the apiaries collapsing. It's kind of like in the Karen Thompson Walker book, The Age of Miracles. This is a YA dystopian. Have you read this? Mm -mm. I don't know how you feel about YA. The plot gets a little muddy in the middle. It's a little problematic, but the concept is so good. And that is that everybody thought when the end of the world came or when people have harmed the earth to the point that it stops working the way it's supposed to, it would look in very specific ways, like the oceans would rise. Mm. But instead what happened is the rotation of the earth started slowing down and they called it the slowing It's just such an interesting concept and the way that she injected that into her premise. And it's also a coming of age story. It's told from the perspective of a teenage girl who's also falling in love at the same time because of course. And (laughs) so it's just really fun. But like that in the history of bees, you don't think that like the end of civilization is going to be because the apiaries collapse. So that's just a fun little twist. It's not just a global pandemic, you know, those are a dime a dozen. Like they're still fascinating, but they're easier to find. So in the late 21st century plot line, we meet this person who is a human pollinator who has to go around and pollinate by hand the fruit trees because there's no bees to do it. All like really interesting stories that come together in ways that you don't see at first and don't really expect. And you have three different parts of the world and three different time frames. So you have the past which is kind of sad. You have the present tense when it's very obvious that everything is doomed. And then you have your dystopian future. Really nice prose. And that kind of like highly structured, intricately plotted thing that we see in the books that you tend to really enjoy. How does that sound to you? Love it. (laughs) I can't wait to hear what you think. I have a pick for you that might be a little bit of an oddball pick, but that's an interesting conversation right there. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm thinking of N.K. Jemisin, specifically the fifth season, which is considered by many to be her best work. It's the first in a series. She writes all different kinds of fantasy, but the reason I like this one for you is that it's set in a world that has seen many, many people groups, many civilizations really Mm. rise and fall, like have their day and then fall away. So this does have that post-apocalyptic feel to it. But something I like about it for you is that N.K. Jemisin is an African-American author Mm. and there's not a lot of popular, critically well-reviewed, high star ratings. Yes. I have mixed feelings about star ratings, Mm. Um, but there's not a lot of dystopian fiction that's really diverse. And we're seeing more and more in YA, but there's not a lot for adults. Exactly. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to become a writer as a kid is because I loved all these stories, but I never saw anyone like me reflected in those stories. So I was like, ah, like I want to write dystopian fiction and science fiction and post post apocalyptic, you know, have the characters be diverse. So I do think this is a book and an author that you could really enjoy. And I think the fifth season is probably a good place to start. 
you wouldn't have to start here. But what I like about this book is that readers who don't typically love fantasy read this book because they've been told by a fellow reader, it's a great book, just read it. So readers who don't typically like gravitate to that section of the bookstore end up loving this book. And it does have that stylish writing, carefully crafted. She also talks about relevant social issues that matter right now. Mm -hmm. And she has a plot that has the substance to hold up to rereading multiple times. And I know you're a rereader, but even if you don't read this multiple times, it seems based on your favorites that you like the books that have depth and layers and substance and a really solid foundation, books that feel like they could stand up to the test of time, that aren't just like fluff puff, you can't just blow them away, but they actually have some meatiness underneath a really engaging reading experience. And this is one of those books. Ooh, it's also told from the point of view of three different women, and you've chosen some stories with multiple points of view. I mean, a strong female protagonist is never a bad thing, right? Never, never, never. I do have to warn you though, when you open this, I don't know if on page two, you're going to be like, oh, (laughs) you're amazing. Where have you been all my life? Because she drops you right into the middle of a really unfamiliar world uh, with some words you won't know, with absolutely no preamble and getting oriented can be a little tricky, but- Please stick it through. And also, I want you to know that in whatever edition you end up picking up, if you're in a hardcover, this will be easier to find or a paperback as opposed to like a Kindle and audiobook. But there is an appendix. And for many uh-huh. readers, discovering that has been a lifesaver because then you can flip to the back and be like, oh, this is what she's talking about. So before you like get a feel for what's happening and what some of the words she uses means, there's a cheat sheet right in the back that will help it make sense from the beginning. Perfection. That sounds awesome. I'm excited about that one for you. Yes. Okay. I'm thinking about Lauren Groff. Have you read anything by her? No. I like her for you as an author because I see her having a lot in common with Emily St. John Mandel. Ah, okay. To a lesser extent, Donna Tartt, but definitely Mandel because they both have this really lovely lyrical writing style. Mm. They have big thoughts. They both build a lot of symbolism into their book that I really think, this is a total screenwriting thing from John Truby, that even if as a reader, you're not like, oh, there's water here. So that must mean, is somebody getting baptized? Like, Mm. are they seeing their reflection? You don't have to even consciously notice the symbolism to like feel the impact of repeating symbols and repeating themes like you don't need to understand the finer points of King Lear to feel like it adds something to the story of Station Eleven. And I feel like that's the same way with the way Lauren Groff writes. Like she often roots her stories in history and myth, and you don't need to know all the ins and outs to feel like this is a story that has something substantial underpinning the plot and the characters. The one I'm thinking about for you is Arcadia. Arcadia. This is totally a coincidence, but there's a flu pandemic in this book. And honestly, I had totally forgotten about that plot point because we talked about how we forget the things. We just remember (laughs) how the book made us feel. It has that sense of atmosphere. It's set in a small, not yet desolate community in New York state, Mm -hmm. in the Western part of the state. So basically far away from New York city. And it's about a small group of people who established this commune at this place called Arcadia house. So that's where the title comes from. And they want to live off the land and raise their children according to their own way of life without anybody interfering and to live out their idealistic principles. But of course, things don't go the way they imagined. The novel actually follows one character specifically, 
a child whose name is Bit, the first child to be born onto this commune. A bit of a loner, very introspective. He just likes to watch what everybody else is doing. So you can see how Bit would make a really excellent narrator for this book. Yeah. His family eventually uh, becomes disillusioned and leaves the commune to make their way out in the world. But you can never leave a childhood like that behind. It's a really interesting story about the gap between idealism mm. and reality. I like that. Sounds like my kind of book. I think it might. But this is also one that I don't know if it's going to grab you from page two, <laughs> but I think it shares a lot of the themes of the books you like so that when you get oriented, I hope it's a keeper. I, I will definitely give it a chance. That's for sure. It has a really lovely cover. Oh, nice. Just just in case you, you know, <laughs> wanted to photograph it at Monarch or put it on yourself. For sure. Patience, of the books we talked about today, what do you think you'll read next? Well, I want to read all of them, but I think my first one will be Arcadia. That sounds really, really good. And it sounds like something that's like right up my alley. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. I'll let you know. That's for sure. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thanks for having me, Anne. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Patience today, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. Leave a comment at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 143, that's 143, and check out the full list of titles we talked about today right there. Connect with Patience online via her gorgeous Instagram accounts, Ink and Fable, spell out, that's I-N-K, spell out, and Fable, F-A-B-L-E, and on her blog, PatienceRandall.com. That's PatienceRandall, R-A-N-D-L-E dot com. Next week's guest is Travis Meserve, who recently took an around-the-globe trip of a lifetime with his wife. We're discussing how books kept them going during their travels, bookshops across America, boosting your reading self-confidence, and all sorts of good readerly stuff. Here's a sneak peek. This is uh, something I love in bookstores, the shelf talkers. I'm sort of working up the confidence as a reader to be the type of person that approaches the people working in the bookstore and actually engage them in a conversation about what I what I like to read and asking for suggestions, but I'm not quite there yet. Travis, you bought groceries in Indonesia. <laughs> That's right. But I, I can't talk to someone about uh, reading in a, in, a, in a bookstore. But for whatever reason, I, I feel like I'm still a little bit intimidated. So for me, I feel like I get to have just a, a, a one-sided conversation through these shelf talkers. <laughs> Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, don't forget to pre-order your copy or two of I'd Rather Be Reading. Pre-order wherever new books are sold, including your local independent bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Indigo, Books A Million, and more. Take your receipt and go to idratherbereading.com to get your pre-order bonuses. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, 
and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.